Welcome back, everyone. Here we are. Let's call it season two of the Don't Crack Up podcast. It's been a while. I'm your host, Patrick, Patrick Markey. Glad to be back with you. Much has changed since the last time a new episode has been published, including the fact that the Party Down revival has a premiere date, which is set for Friday, February 24th, 2023. Full disclosure, the episode you're about to hear was recorded in July of 2022 using the information available at that time. In other words, we knew that there was going to be a revival. We didn't know the premiere date, but now we do. So bear in mind, February 24th, 2023 is the premiere date. Other than that, don't crack up. Glad to be back with you. Enjoy. Uh, it's been a while since I've had an episode. So because of that, there's a lot of ground to cover, a lot of territory to cover. To all three of my listeners, hello, how are you? I hope you are well. I hope you've been well. I hope that you have not cracked up. That's the theme of all of it. Do not crack up. Uh, something to maybe help with that as you commute, as you walk on a treadmill, as you vacuum, as you bike around your neighborhood, whatever the case is, whatever time or place you're listening to this, if you are, thank you. I hope you're well. This is a commuter's podcast uh, made by a commuter, something to help with the commute. Let's go to it. There's so much to cover. The Do Not Crack Up podcast, a commuter's podcast. Here we are again. We're back through the construction on the interstate. Let's move forward. Let's work through it. And let's talk about what I'm listening to, I've been watching over these last six months or so. And guess what, folks? Yes, there will be another installment of a Party Down discussion, the Stars Network television program. It ran in 2009 to 2010. But guess what? Since we last spoke, since the last episode, it's been announced, it's been confirmed that there is a revival. Party Down is coming back. So we're going to touch on that. We're going to talk about that. This episode's installment is a deep dive into Constance Carmel, played by Jane Lynch, the great Jane Lynch. We have new entries to the LCSU. This time, go to the end of the watching section to hear it. The other episodes go to the beginning. The LCSU, the Lizzie Kaplan Shared Universe. So, let's go. Let's get to it. Music. All right, uh, starting off in the commuter way, let's go with listening. And uh, as is custom with all the other episodes, start off with uh, an audiobook. And good way, in my opinion, to pass the time during the commute. What I'm referencing here, I've listened to a number of audiobooks over the last uh, period of time, the last six months or so. I'm just going to go with the very best. The best single audiobook that I've listened to over the last six months is uh, Circe by Madeline Miller. Got this on Audible. It was narrated by Perita Weeks from the year 2018. And this is a story that is kind of consistent with a recent trend, I guess, or seemingly recent trend to you know, retell stories from a different perspective, particularly stories about 
perceived villains and give a different uh, perspective on who they are, what their motivations are, how they came to be perceived in the way that they are, and maybe shining a different light on the subject. And so Circe, being a figure from Greek mythology, a goddess, and most famously, she is known from the Odyssey. Odysseus meets her on Iio. Odysseus or Odysseus, I guess depending on your preferred pronunciation. I'm sure one is right and one is wrong, but I've heard it both ways, I guess. She is famous for turning men into pigs. And all these issues are addressed in this book. Incredibly well-written, great world-building. So if you're a fan of Greek mythology, if it interests you, highly recommend it. But even if not, if you just like good storytelling, uh, good character-driven story, a uh, good way to pass the time. I will say it's a good narration by Perita Weeks. The only issue I had, and it could just be the equipment I was using, there were times when it was extremely quiet. So just be mindful to... I have to turn those speakers up, or maybe that was just an issue on my end. Regardless, this story addresses the issue of what was it like to be an immortal being in the world of Greek myth, and it addresses sort of the day-to-day of that universe, the interactions, and gives a conception of what that might look like when humans are living in this same world as the immortals. It addresses all these things, and what it does is it, it, it makes you question, and it questions the morality of these beings, of their decision-making, of their impact on the mortals, and vice versa, the decision-making uh, of the mortals and their motivations. And through this, we have Circe, who is a daughter of Helios, a titan of the sun, uh, who controls the sun, or the sun himself, and then a nymph. And so one of the issues being there are so many of these, I guess, minor in the larger pantheon divine beings that you sort of get lost in the shuffle. Well, Circe distinguishes herself along with her siblings by having the ability to practice witchcraft, magic. And it, we see a progression of that, being able to use her powers, harness her powers. But we also see the politics of the time and certainly the patriarchy, patriarchal issues that someone like Circe has to deal with and is, is sort of crushed underneath. We see the way that she has normal, what we would consider human emotions like jealousies, but how when someone with powers acts out, it has uh, de- can have devastating implications on so many, which I think is something that you know so you, so you see in a number of the kind of modern superhero movies, right? The implications of what would it re- really be like to have these powers in a world where others don't. The Boys, I think, is sort of the most violent, crude example of that. This really gives a, a kind of scathing view and look at Odysseus, the, 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 the hero of the Odyssey. And it asks the question, well, what about everyone else? What about the people he left behind? What about the decisions he made and those who were sort of victims or died through um, his exploits? Stories that made him a hero, 
what about everyone else that was impacted by it? And I think it does an excellent job of making you sort of reconsider that story and its implications. Through it all, we have Cersei, who undoubtedly does things that harm others, that lead to the death of others, but she is aware of that. There is uh, guilt, there is uh, remorse, there is an attempt at atonement. So unlike other, other stories that look at villains and just sort of glance over this, she takes a deep dive. She is looking at this, she is haunted by it, and she attempts to make it right the best she can. Also, traumas that she suffers, violence that she suffers, leading to take actions, extreme actions the other way, to the harm of others and the detriment of others who don't always deserve it. So it really does an excellent job of making you question uh, the morality of this entire world, of this entire universe. I uh, really thought it was thought-provoking, extremely well done, well-paced, and it moves right along. And before you know it, it's over. The world building in particular, I think, is one of the strongest aspects because it's something that I would like to go back and hear more stories in this universe she has created. So there it is. Highly recommended. Circe by Madeline Miller. Got it on Audible. Narrated by Perita Weeks from the year 2018. That was the single best audiobook I listened to uh, in the first half of this year. I will say that there were a number of other good ones, but, uh, well, we'll talk about that another time. Okay, one other thing we like to do, I like to do, is to name a song that I've been listening to recently, particularly uh, something I like to put on repeat and kind of drift away while driving. Uh, certainly pay attention at all times to the road. That's not what I'm saying, but something that can kind of be a stress reliever or thought provoker or whatever the case may be. Well, today, I want to tell you that recently, particularly in the heightened tensions that are happening, you know, locally, nationally, internationally, with all the things that are going on in the world, a good song, an excellent song that I've been having on repeat to sort of drift away or find a more serene place is a song called Change Your Mind. And it's by the band Camper Van Beethoven from the year 1988. And it's from the album, Our Beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart. You might know this band, or you may not. The lead singer is David Lowry, went on to uh, lead the group Cracker, who had some, I guess, some, some pop hits in the 1990s. Yeah, songs like Low from the album Kerosene Hat, uh, Teenage Angst from their first album, which was self-titled Cracker. But anyway, in the 80s, Camper uh, Van Beethoven, it had some college so-called college radio hits, I of Fatima, which is on the album, Our Beloved, Our Beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart. Uh, I used to have it, or I'd still have it, on the cassette tape, the best of 120 minutes. And uh, they had a cover of Pictures of Matchstick Men by Status Quo. That was from their album, Key Lime Pie. That had some radio play, I guess you would say, left of the dial, as it were. So this song, Change Your Mind, what is it about? Well, that's for you to listen and decide. It's a song that I find calming. It arrives with um, maybe a horn or brass instrument of some kind. I'm not entirely sure. And all of a sudden, David Lowry, the singer, starts singing. And a picture gets painted. And I think if you listen to it over, you may see it in different ways. And you may 
view this picture differently. I think sort of what I currently envision is an argument has taken place. Someone has walked away. Someone is in a different place than the person they were arguing with. And they're sort of recounting the argument in their mind or they're playing it over in their mind. But then they're drifting away. They're sort of settling themselves down by imagining walking away, being somewhere else. And as they're walking away, they're just sort of taking in the scenery, taking in the things around them. And, uh, you know, what a great and healthy technique it is. Imagine walking away from an argument, not escalating it. Imagine uh, walking away and I guess, what is it, mindfulness you would call it, sort of just taking in the scene around you and evaluating and not being caught up in the anger the tension and all of a sudden you're in a different mindset then the chorus i guess you would call it the chorus comes on the titular change your mind lyrics come on and i think it can be interpreted in different ways either the narrator is saying that you could change your mind as in you the other person maybe they're talking to themselves you as in the narrator could change their mind maybe it's a bit of both and a great line, I'll be glad to let you. So I think a critical point in arguments, right? Even if the person does apologize, if they do back down, do you have the capacity to, to forgive them and let it go? Or are you so caught up in the tension and in that rush and in that uh, stress and negativity that is something you're actually embracing? Can you let it go? Can you let the other person... Uh, change or walk away can you yourself allow yourself to change or walk away all things to think about while listening to the song change your mind by camper van beethoven put it on repeat you won't be disappointed at least in my opinion put the song on listen to it focus on it and all of a sudden in a calmer place we are all right excellent so those are things i've been listening to let's move on what's next things that i've been watching Well, folks, there have been so many things to watch. It's been an overload in the year 2022. Show after show after show on you know, network television, streaming service after streaming service. Hard to keep track of it all. Hard to catch up with it all. Uh, an embarrassment of riches. I mean, there have been a lot of really excellent things on, but it's just been a lot to sort through it all. You know, what was the very best thing I watched over the last six months? Well, really kind of extending back to the even, you know, six months and even beyond that to the end of last year. I'm going to go with uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, season 15. When you reach that kind of number, season 15, is you know, can the show still be interesting? Can the show still have episodes that... Uh, are rewatchable, you know, I mean, these, those early shows, the early sunny episodes, so easy to watch over and over and over and, and laugh and kind of see something different in each one. Can it still be quality TV? Can it still live up to the standard that the show has created? Uh, Rob McElhaney, Charlie Day, Glenn Howerton. The answer is yes. And this season, very short, it's only eight episodes. And it did something different, and I think that was so uh, smart of them, well well thought out, 
think Megan Gantz is a showrunner now, um, so credit to her. If you like the show, by the way, as an aside, they have an excellent podcast, uh, the It's Always Sunny podcast. The three of them, Glenn, Charlie, and uh, Rob, along with Megan producing and, and talking as well sometimes, so check that out. But this season they did something different. They went with a serialized story arc for the last, really, five episodes. And that is they went to Ireland. Now, the last four episodes, the second half of the season, specifically set in Ireland, but in the fourth episode, it sets up the trip. So it all fits together. Having said that, it is serialized, but you don't have... I mean, you could just jump in on any episode and, and figure out pretty quickly what's going on. But... They did something different. I mean, they had done two-part episodes. You know, Mac and Charlie die. The gang gets whacked. Come to mind. But this went even further. And what's interesting about this season is they really jumped into the lore of the world. I don't want to spoil because it is new enough. It's it's only been six months or however long. So, But you get backstories on certain characters, questions that have been there throughout the span of the whole show get answered there's actually a prequel episode that fills in the blanks of character development as well as the purchase of patty's pub itself now having said that i don't know that all of it makes total sense or matches completely up with what we've heard in other seasons but you know whatever chalk it up to memory because the episode is the characters recalling what what happened so it's all funny. It was very well done. And it has some of the best episodes uh, in the last four or five seasons. Although the last four or five seasons have had some uh, strong, funny episodes. This, almost like they found a new rhythm. You know, because, let's be honest, there's aging involved. I've aged. We all do. And including the characters. And so the characters have aged. What do you do now? Because so many of the jokes in the earlier seasons touch on the idea that these characters haven't decided what they're doing with their life or there is something else that's going to happen and this sort of takes it in a different direction a little bit that these folks are a little more resigned to the life they're living perhaps I guess that's one way to look at it but you know as they always do they touch on relevant highly sensitive social issues in such a funny way and in such a way that makes you think while also laughing so another thing about this season of always sunny that i thought really stood out this tradition they've started it seems like since season 12 which is the very last episode of each season kind of having a real emotional moment so of course it's a, it's a comedic show it's a it's a dark comedy it's uh, got some dark humor etc uh, but season 12, you had Dennis uh, deciding to leave the bar in a really genuine emotional moment. The following season, Mac finds his pride, this very emotional, real modern dance piece take, that takes place. Uh, then in season 14, there's sort of this meta moment about will the gang kind of walk away? Uh, of course they don't. And then this season, I think the best of all, or eh, I don't know if the best of all, that modern dance piece was very impressive. But Charlie Day, as Charlie, has a really emotional and moving scene in the last episode, season 15, uh, episode 8. 
And I think it's one of the highlights of the whole series, you know, non-comedically. Certainly wasn't the funniest moment, uh, but a really moving, genuinely well done moment, acted, shot, writing, everything. This season was so so great because of the kind of range they showed. You had that genuine emotion, but you also had some real moments of horror, like a horror movie aspect with uh, Glenn Howerton as Dennis, slapstick comedy, incredible physical comedy, as always, by Caitlin Olsen as Sweet D. So highly recommended. It was a great season. Uh, right right away, it's one of those rewatch, you know, one of those put it back on. Watch it over and over like you do your favorite comedy. Anyway, so Always Sunny, season 15. Check it out. It was on FXX. You can see it on Hulu, Amazon, iTunes, etc., etc. Just to touch quickly on some other TV shows, Severance on Apple TV, starring the great Adam Scott of Party Down fame. He was incredible in the show. You have John Turturro. You have uh, even Christopher Walken is on the show, Severance. You have Britt Lauer, uh, I believe is her name. She is really excellent in the show. She, of course, was on Always Sunny, I believe, at the beginning of season 14, maybe. She does an Airbnb episode. Uh, Okay, what is the show about? Well, it is about work-life balance in this futuristic world, in this sort of sci-fi world. People voluntarily join the severance program. The severance program is where you get a chip in your brain. And when you go to work, a different part of your brain is activated from outside of work. And one side doesn't remember the other. So it's almost like two, two entirely different people. And so it's, it's touching on this implication of us being overwhelmed by work and our identities being tied so much to work instead of you know, just living lives and being people or our lives inexorably you know entwined with work and also it touches on these issues of corporate conspiracy and uh, corporate intentions and labor versus management and it's very very well done Patricia Arquette plays a really strange uh, manager in the show and I think it's it's such a bizarre person that she plays that it's it's done incredibly well it has the, the tension. It's almost, if you remember Westworld season one, which was so great, with the mystery, with the tension, that is Severance. Severance on Apple TV, a must-see. Can't wait for the next uh, season. Another, and I, I just, I can't even do the show justice by talking about it briefly, but We Own This City on HBO, HBO Max. It is a David Simon show. If you, David Simon, George Pelicanos, From The Wire, it is about the true story of a corrupt uh, Baltimore City police unit. I did not know the story before seeing the show. And as great as The Wire is, it really continues with that tradition, but it goes to a different level. It is a devastating show. It is an overpowering show. It is a show that there's no putting, you know, putting it on in the background and you're scrolling Twitter. I mean, this is a show that demands attention and you are rewarded by absolutely relevant, powerful, um, disheartening truth. Can't recommend it enough. We own this city. John Bernthal stars as a police officer named Wayne Jenkins. Jamie Hector, who played the villainous Marlo Stanfield on The Wire, plays a detective named Sean Souter, 
incredible performance, particularly when you're used to Jamie Hector as Marlowe. To see him in this, this is a detective who has seen a lot of things, and that is conveyed through the Jamie Hector's performance in his eyes and his movements. Incredibly well done. And guess what, folks? It's six episodes long. Tense episodes that fly by, in my opinion, and it's it's so well done. It's so relevant, and it's very powerful and shocking and disheartening. Check it out. We Own This City on HBO and HBO Max. And as a sort of bonus here, since it's been so long, I'm going to give a very brief what I've been watching movies. There's been so many, and again, as everything's happening, there's so all these streaming services, they're nonstop movies being put out there. So here it is. Uh, just to keep it simple, I'm going to tell you the three best movies I've seen in the last six months or so. And this dates all the way back to the holiday season. The very best movie I've seen in the past six to eight months was a movie called You Better Watch Out from 1980. It's also known as Christmas Evil. Not to be confused with Better Watch Out from 2016, which is sort of a evil horror version of Home Alone. This is called You Better Watch Out with a lead performance by Brandon Maggart. Uh, just to kind of give you a little modern reference, if you've watched Succession, the guy named Frank, you know, the character Frank, who works for uh, Logan, and he's close with Kendall on the show. Uh, his name is, uh, he's an actor, Peter Vernon. And you'll instantly recognize him if you watch Succession. He, he looks very similar, even though this movie's from 1980. This movie is, uh, I think, along the lines of a taxi driver or a joker but maybe a little more innocent than that you have an individual who you watch his his breakdown you watch his downfall in this case this is a man who is obsessed with christmas and santa claus in fact he uh, acts as santa claus he's very disturbingly watching children making a naughty and nice list and you watch his degeneration. You see his origins and the things he saw at Christmas when he was a kid. He has a brother who's a very angry, sort of hot-headed person. And our main character, again, played by Brandon Maggart. Incredible performance. He is an innocent person in many ways. He believes in the spirit of giving and kindness and joy and childlike innocence. He works at a toy factory. But he's consistently, he's taken advantage of, he's rejected, he's misunderstood, you might say, and then he snaps. And this movie, again, I sort of talked on it about Circe, this kind of reimagining of villains and all these things. This movie does a, a job of showing someone's origins, why they snap, but also, you know, he's giving gifts to the orphanage at the same time he's committing horrible violent acts. So it's a very disturbing movie. It's very well acted, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to gauge, when I say the best movies I've seen, I guess I'm talking about something that sticks with me. You know, how many movies you watch, the minute it's over, you forget about it. It happened, it's over, you don't remember. This was a movie that happened, and it stuck with me, and I thought about it. So that's why I'm going to describe it as the best movie I've seen in the last 
six to eight months or so, you better watch out from the year 1980, a.k.a. Christmas Evil. I'm putting it right up there, top five of Christmas horror movies that I've seen, although I don't know that I'd consider it a horror movie. I would Maybe a psychological drama, I think, is more accurate. Now, the next movie I would say with Best Of certainly is a horror movie, slasher. It's called X from the year 2022, this year. It's out. Uh, it went to theaters. Now you can rent it. Uh, by the way, uh, you better watch out. I saw that through Shudder, the streaming service, which you can get from Amazon and all kinds of other things. So I saw You Better Watch Out on Shudder, a.k.a. Christmas Evil. X was a movie, rented it through Amazon. You can rent it through anything, Am uh, you know, Apple, Xfinity, all those things. And so this is um, A24 Studio. so already, you know, in my world, that's likely to be quality content and indeed it was this is a, a horror movie of slasher type it's written and directed by t west certainly not for kids um, it's sort of a half of a drama half of a slasher and really kind of goes that way the first half more of a traditional drama and in many ways second half goes to uh slasher i won't you know, to spoil anything, I think if you watch the trailer, you already know that it's a slasher movie, and there's going and slashing is going to happen, and indeed it does. It's set in 1979. You have people, I believe it's in Texas, that are uh, trying to make uh, an adult film, but really touches on these kind of relevant themes of the desire for fame and stardom, which we still we still see now in our. Um, you know, the YouTube star, TikTok star, all the kind of stuff. And it's talking about that then. It's always been part of our our culture, and it remains. Not everyone, but many people. You know, we have that desire to, to, to be famous, to be recognized, and this is really touching on that. But it goes to the extreme of what happens when that fame, that uh, recognition doesn't happen. And... We have this juxtaposition between a younger woman who people think is going to be a star and she sees herself that way versus an older woman who uh, it never happened. And so this tension creates the fuel for the movie. You know, it really touches on aging, uh, touches on regret and how do we deal with that. And the movie X, really excellent. I enjoyed it. Certainly not for kids. And finally, kind of a fun movie in its own way, even though it is a vampire and there's certainly uh, violence and things in it, but it's a movie called Suck from the year 2010. It's directed by uh, Rob Stefanik, and um, he stars in it. Well, he's the main character, yeah. And then you have J uh, Jessica Pari from uh, Mad Men. You might remember her. She was Don Draper's... Uh, younger wife, you know, kind of some of the later seasons, or maybe the middle seasons, I don't remember exactly. It's a movie that's got Iggy Pop, it's got Alice Cooper, it's got Henry Rollins, and this is just a movie that I would describe as fun, even though it is a, you know, it's a vampire movie, it does have the horror elements, but it's almost like, what if the movie The Apple, if you remember that one, that could bizarre kind of singing Garden of Eden parable metaphor i don't know what it's supposed to be but it's a, a really bizarre musical movie about uh selling your soul for fame 
this is the same thing, but much better, much better, uh, much more uh, enjoyable, more well done. Although the apple is enjoyable in its in its in its very unique way, uh, this is a good movie. I enjoy the movie. Suck. Get ready. They're going to sing. And so the, I think maybe the first time people start singing, you kind of get taken back a little bit. But it's a really enjoyable movie. A movie that I rewatched. Uh, so that that says a lot. You know, you watch it, had a good time, put it back on, saw it again. It's it's fun in its way. Again, another kind of touching on X, that theme of the desire for fame and what would you do. Oh, Malcolm McDowell plays Van Helsing in it, and I'm sure you can figure out what his role in the movie is. Well done. Enjoyable time. The movie's called Suck from the year 2010. Got it on Amazon. It might be on Prime right now. But anyway, good time. And so that's that. That's what I've been watching. There are many more things, but you know we only have so much time. So let's move on. You know what we're going to talk about? What we always talk about, the LCSU, America's Greatest Living Actor, Lizzie Kaplan. Let's do it. One more entry, another entry, a mega entry, the Lizzie Kaplan Shared Universe. And what is that? Well, it's a running thing we have in this podcast, a way to pass the time, but you know, everyone likes these theory videos. They like their conspiracies. Well, here's one that the movie Save the Date from the year 2012, starring Lizzie Kaplan, that in fact, that is the keystone, the hub, the center of the Lizzie Kaplan shared universe, that all of her work, America's greatest living actor, Lizzie Kaplan, that all of her works, TV, movie, that they all share some connection, either in plot point or a shared actor to the movie Save the Date, or that they share a plot or actor with another movie or television show that itself shares a plot line or a plot point or a actor with Save the Date. So if you think about Always Sunny, remember Sweet D has a heart attack that episode, Charlie has the conspiracy uh, on the wall with Pepe Silvia, all the points leading to everything in the middle is Pepe Silvia. Well, this is our version of that. And in the center is Save the Date. So I've got a bunch of new entries for you. We've done it every episode. My loyal three listeners, you know what I'm talking about. It started on the very first episode. The full explanation is there. So if you want to know more, go to the first episode explained in detail and it gives sort of the baseline but subsequently each subsequent episode has had a new entry and here we go again in those other episodes if you just start with the watching section you'll get that this one we're going to the end of it so lcsu here we go new entries And so the LCSU, Lizzie Kaplan Shared Universe, rolls on. And I think that to make it sort of more understandable and someday someone makes a physical representation of this, in my mind at least, it's, it's, it becomes easier to sort of break down by category. So I've seen a number of new things she's been in, not new things, but other things she's been in that I hadn't seen before or in some things that I had seen before that maybe originally were 
you know, explained uh, esoterically in the very first episode. So I've got some new connections there and how they relate, things like Castle Rock and Truth Be Told on uh, Apple, Castle Rock's on Hulu. Anyway, so I'm going to break this down categories. Get ready. Here comes a, a deluge of new connections. I'm going to call this first general category sisters, you know, in, in uh, Save the Date, the, you know, core of the movie is the relationship between Sarah, played by Lizzie Kaplan, and Alison Breeze, character, her sister in the movie. And so sisters as a plot point, as a sort of plot device, truth be told, Apple TV, she plays two sisters. She plays twins. So there you go. There's that. And if you've seen the show, I, I had seen some of it before. Now I've seen it all the way through. Twist after twist after twist. I won't say any more. I'll leave it there. Castle Rock on Hulu. Uh, now I have, since uh, last we spoke, I've now finished it. I've seen the whole second season that she's on. It's fairly new, 2019. I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm just going to basically say Sisters as a plot point, and I'll stop there. Smallville. All right, Smallville, which I saw on Hulu, and I think it's an old WB show, but it's about uh, high school Clark Kent Superman, and uh, she played this character, Tina Greer, who's a real, like, Scooby-Doo villain almost. There's a whole shape-shifting thing, and, and only she literally can shape-shift. Two episodes, season one, episode four, season two, episode 11, and one of the plot points is she has this obsession with this other character, Lana, and she says, you're like a sister to me, so count it. Sisters as a plot point. Uh, the movie, 127 Hours, starring James Franco. What role does she play? Yes, that's right. She plays the role sister. And there's not really a lot more you can say about the character because that movie is so heavily focused on James Franco, you know, playing a real person who was trapped, their arms stuck in a boulder, which is a, a very good movie, very uh, tough watch at times because it is a real story and well acted well shot so that's one category sister so we've got some new entries there here's another another category awkward public relationship moment uh in the movie save the date there's this whole critical scene early on in which the sarah character is is living with her boyfriend kevin he's in a band they uh, perform and after the performance or during he proposes to her it's an awkward moment she says no and walks away so this category awkward public relationship moment uh the show i'm sorry starring andrea savage which is a party down connection she was the original casey she had a guest appearance season two episode two she plays the mother precious lights preschool auction in the show, it's her show, I'm Sorry. It was on True TV, season one, episode eight. Uh, Lizzie Kaplan is in relationship with her partner. They fight really <laughs> awkward and uncomfortable arguments with themselves and with uh, someone working at this place where the kids have, are being taken. It's a play date, etc. So awkward public relationship moment. The show Beef, which is a satirical show, the great Michael Ian Black is in it. A number of uh, people from the state are in the movie, or I'm sorry, in the show. I got it on Amazon. It was sold as a quote-unquote movie, but I think it was a series of short episodes. And it's a, you know, a takeoff of 
of court shows. People are going to a, a deli, a butcher shop, and he's acting as the judge to squash beef, as it were. So in that show, she is with Thomas Lennon, another Party Down connection, because he is in season two, episode three. He play, is in a relationship with uh, the character played by Lizzie Kaplan. They are complaining because uh, dancing lessons have gone awry. This is, again, the show Beef. And it's very awkward. Private information is shared in this. So, again, awkward public relationship moment. The Marvel one-shot, Item 47, which I saw on Disney+. Plus. It's a short that takes place after, I guess, the events of Avengers Part 1. Uh, she is in a relationship with someone who has found alien technology and they go on a crime spree. Is that an awkward public relationship moment? Well, I don't know. Criminal. You know, criminal. And uh, they're shooting up banks and all these things. So, I don't know. Close enough. We'll count it. Might be a stretch, but we'll count it. Okay, here's another category. Here's another category. Aversion to relationships or commitment issues with the relationships and commitment. First is a, a show called Mr. Sunshine starring Matthew Perry. Uh, it was apparently a network sitcom. The only way I could find it was on Amazon and I had to buy it. So my commitment to you to bring you this incredible quality content was to spend $1.99 to buy an episode of Mr. Sunshine. And the show, a very strange show, the premise seems to be that a company owns a stadium and wacky things happen, I guess. Office type things happen and, and other stuff. So in that episode, it's, I think it's the last episode of the first season, aka the only season. And there's a whole thing with her being in this non-committal relationship with a casual relationship with uh, Matthew Perry's character and... She is not interested in committing, and when he asks her to sort of formally be in a relationship, she walks away. So there you go. Uh, of course, again, a plot point in Save the Date is the character Sarah's aversion to commitment, and that runs throughout the whole movie. Uh, the show Inside Job on Netflix. It's a cartoon. I think it's a cartoon show. Executive producer Alice Hirsch, who did Gravity Falls, um, and so it's a show with uh, conspiracies being real, but, you know, like any show, it's focusing on the people and their relationships. She has a terrible relationship with her father, but she also has this aversion to relationship. There's a whole episode in which she is fleeing and trying to get away from someone who wants to be with her. So there we go. And, and also both of those characters... Uh, Reagan is her name in Inside Job. You know, relishes her independence, values her independence, and that's a plot point, certainly, in Save the Date. Uh, <laughs> unrequited love as a category, because the character Kevin, as I said, he proposes to the Sarah character in Save the Date. She walks away. He makes other attempts to reconcile with her. She rejects him. The Cleveland show, the cartoon show, uh, there is an episode in which she plays Patty, who has an obsession with the titular Cleveland, and it is unrequited. So, and it goes to some pretty strange places. Um, the Cleveland Show. Yes, there's another one. Now, 
one final category. So this is a this is a big dump, a, a big uh, info dump I'm putting on you here. This is a a, big, a large group that I'm I'm laying down here. All right. Last but not least, just a general uh, category of party down. So party down, as you know, as we talk so much about, one of our co-stars in Party Down is Martin Starr as Roman De Beers. Martin Starr is also a co-star in Save the Date, so you always have that connection. People that she was in a in something with that, or she was also in Party Down with, you've always got that Party Down connection. Martin Starr being in both Party Down and Save the Date. So here's a here's a you know as I said, I'm sorry, Andrea Savage. That's that's a double connection. Uh, Beef, as I talked about, Thomas Lennon is in it. Uh, Joe Latruglio is in it. Joe Latruglio playing um, Ron Donald's uh, friend from high school in season one, episode nine. James Rolfe, high school, 20th reunion. Matt Walsh was in both Beef and in Party Down. Matt Walsh played the agent in season two, episode nine. Cole Landry's draft day party. You've got all that. You've got the show Angie Tribeca. Now, that was a show that I saw on Hulu, and she plays a someone who has been lost and found. She has amnesia, and I'm going to have to go a little bit further in a connection because that show is very slapstick, uh, you know, mock of a cop show. But in the show, Angie Tribeca, one of the main characters is Giles, Giles, played by Hayes MacArthur, the actor. Well, guess what? He is also in the movie bachelorette and uh, bachelorette it was a very good movie he he plays the the groom to be that movie co-stars adam scott as uh, lizzie kaplan's love interest in that in that movie and of course we know adam scott is also in party down as her character's love interest in that show as well so we've got connections bachelor bachelorette to party down, party down to save the date. So there you go. Can't think about it anymore for today. So that was a big, you know, look, I, I haven't spoken to you all in so long. I thought I better get, I better give the people what they want, which is probably not this, but I'm going to do it anyway. So there we go. The great Lizzie Kaplan. I know that there's at least one thing I haven't seen yet. I'm sure there's many more, but a movie called Crashing starring uh, Campbell Scott. You might remember him from Singles. Uh, the movie set in Seattle. So I'll watch that. I'll let you know what connections can be made, if any. I bet there is. Because it's all real, the Lizzie Kaplan shared universe. And how do we know that? Because I've saved the best for last. One more. In the first episode, I talked about Mean Girls, and I did more of an esoteric kind of you know connection of the name Janice and the two Sarahs. But Mean Girls, folks... Mean Girls, the movie in which she plays Janice Ian, the artist, um, gothic, outcast mean girl, that might have the very most connections to save the date. That might be the one. That might be the one that converts you and makes you believe. Get ready for this. I'm going to name four connections. Number one, you've got Party Down, and maybe the most obvious one you have uh, Daniel Francis, I'm sorry, I'm probably butchering their name, and I apologize. But he plays the Janice character's best friend. Well, guess what? He's also in Party Down, season two, episode nine. Cole Landry's draft day party. He's Cole Landry's friends. Messes with Ron. And not only that, but in both 
the Party Down episode and in Mean Girls, revenge a revenge plot as a part of their character's story uh, occurs in both. Imagine that. Okay, so let's get that out of the way, Party Down. We've got that. That's sort of the obvious one with a lot of the works we've talked about. But number two, both characters, Sarah in Save the Day, Janice Ian in Mean, mean Girls, they're both artists. They both sketch, and they both sketch sort of plot points. They, they sketch uh, parts of the story. Janice sketches uh, the lay of the land in the lunchroom. The Sarah character sketches events that have taken place throughout the movie. She shows them afterwards. Not only are they artists and they sketch, but they both sketch like black ink on white paper or pencil on paper, but, you know, anyway no color but they both sketch pictures there you go imagine that so that's number two number three both movies have a missed art showing of this lizzie kaplan character janice and sarah as a source of contention with the female lead in mean girls uh lindsay lohan character misses uh janice ian's art showing that causes a rift between them in Save the Date. Allison Bree's character misses the art showing. That causes a rift. All right, so there we go. And number four, a concert as a pivotal plot moment. In Save the Date, as I've said three times already, it's the failed proposal. In Mean Girls, there is the talent show with the dance, and that becomes a moment when... Uh, Lindsay Lohan, Lohan's character kind of stands out and gets everyone's attention and, and starts to take the lead. So there you go. Amazing stuff. You've heard it. Wow. Incredible. And congratulations to everyone. All right. The LCSU lives on. And folks, before we go to party down discussion just want to touch base as we always do and make a pitch for the louisville legal aid society i don't work for them i'm not in you know i'm not asked to do this by them i'm sure they don't know that i'm doing this i doubt very much they listen to it but anyway having said that it's a a pitch for a charitable donation if you feel it in your heart now, these are very difficult economic times, inflation, gas prices, so I know this might be a real challenge. But if you find it in your heart, if you find you have enough money to spare, please consider donating to the Louisville Legal Aid Society. It is an incredible service that provides legal services to low-income individuals in need, including the homeless or the unhoused, veterans, domestic violence victims. To donate, you go to yourlegalaid.org, no E, yourlegalaid.org, or you can go to yourlegalaid.org slash donate, or you can go to www.laslou.org, and I think it'll take you to the same website, yourlegalaid.org. Y-O-U-R-L-E-G-A-L-A-I-D dot org. The Louisville Legal Aid Society, a great organization, so important, Again, they haven't asked me to do this. This is just something I'm, I'm pitching to you. If you feel it in your heart, here's an opportunity to, to help. Okay, onward we go. Party down time. 
All right, here we are. It's time for the seventh installment of the Party Down discussion. Party Down, the Stars Network program, which debuted in 2009 with season one, 2010 for season two. Created by John Embaum, Rob Thomas, Dan Etheridge, and Paul Rudd. You can see it by subscribing to Stars, subscribing to Hulu, buying it on Amazon, Prime Video, Apple, or I guess it's the iTunes store, any of those. So easy easy to get. The cheapest way, as I've said many times, is if you go on Amazon itself, you can buy both seasons on DVD for under $10, at least the last time I checked. What a deal. What a steal. Party Down. Check it out. It, of course, as we've talked many times, the story of the Party Down catering crew and the lives they lead, the, the dreams, the hopes they have, the career opportunities and failures that they experience together, all as play out at various catering events. And it takes place in the Los Angeles area because of entertainment industry aspirations mostly not in all cases of course we've talked about that such as ron donald played by ken marino whose aspirations are to be the king of catering or the king of restaurants as it were but as we begin today's discussion today's discussion talking specifically about constance carmel played by the great jane lynch who appeared in eight episodes in the first season, in one episode, in the second season, the last season. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. All the spoilers for the first two seasons. So if you haven't seen them yet, go watch it. And even if you have, uh, if you haven't, I think you, you will still get something from it uh, by listening. But please watch. So here we go. Before we go any further, I've kind of preferenced things by saying the, f- the first season, the second season, because season two, episode 10, which had been the final episode, Constant Carmel's Wedding, uh, is no longer going to be the final episode. So let's talk about that first. Party Down Revival. It's happening. Not only is it happening, it's happened in that I saw an article, I think it was on maybe like a deadline or a vulture those websites that the filming has already taken place. And this was an interview with Adam Scott talking about the great show Severance on Apple TV Plus, which I talked about earlier in this episode. So it's happening. It's happened. The filming has taken place. I don't know when it comes out. I expect sometime in 2022 or maybe early 23. I don't know. I just know that the filming has happened according to an interview I read uh, with Adam Scott. And so... First thing is, let's be positive. The showrunner is John Enbaum, the great John Enbaum, who's credited with so much of the uh, writing of the first two seasons, the first 20 episodes. And so trust in John Enbaum. He's back. He is, seems to be the showrunner, executive producer. I don't know exactly, but he's, he's involved. So let's trust in that and in in, in, in the crew, the, the creators, as we've talked about, John Embaum, Dan Etheridge, Rob Thomas, and Paul Rudd, trust in the creators, trust in their talent to have a great story to tell, trust in the incredible actors, Adam Scott, Ken Marino, Martin Starr, Ryan Hansen, of course. 
Megan Mullally, and Jane Lynch. I believe all those individuals have been confirmed for an article on, I think it was Vulture. However, we have to acknowledge uh, an article I read on Vulture, Lizzie Kaplan, the great, incomparable Lizzie Kaplan, as the immortal Casey Klein will not be in the show. Apparently, in the, the real world, Lizzie Kaplan had other commitments. Will we resent those other commitments as diehard fans? Possibly, but, you know, keep an open mind. So initially, uh, there's a reaction, I think, naturally, if you're a big fan of the show, if you're a fan of her, that character, that how can the show happen without Casey, such a critical uh, an integral part of the story. Then a second part, uh, maybe a deep breath and say, you know what, trust trust in the showrunners, trust in John Enbaum, and let's see what happens, see where it goes. What has happened in the last 12 years? Well, we're going to find out. What will happen? And I think one of the big challenges of the show as a fan is going to be, can they thread the needle of comedy and drama without being absolutely <laughs> overwhelming in uh disappointment because by implication these individuals are likely working at party down still 12 years later and so what successes what failures have they had well we'll find out if anybody can pull this off it is these showrunners it is these uh, this creative team it are these actors so I'm very I'm excited looking forward to it uh, and we'll see some of these Comments that have been made on this uh, podcast and will be made, of course, are based on what has happened in what's been on screen in the 20 episodes we do have. Will the analysis change? Possibly. Change in terms of maybe overall perspective? Yeah, possibly. At the same time, what's been said is based on what has happened. So we can stand by all that and the, the journey you and I have been on together and doing a deep dive on all these characters. What does it mean going forward? Well, today we're going to talk about Constance Carmel. Still going to do a deep dive on uh, Lydia Dunfrey, played by Megan Mullally. At that point, all the main cast recurring characters we would have done a deep dive on, looking at everything they do in every episode. I am interested in doing a, an episode on, you know, top five guest stars for the first two seasons, something like that. And, and we'll see where else we go. Hopefully I get this all out before the new season plays or the revival plays so that we have all of it locked down here are thoughts on all the characters and all the episodes prior to the new season what will it bring and while we think about it for making predictions what might happen well does the past uh, give us a clue does it a hint or suggest what's going to happen next think about this the show has certainly patterns and things that re recur uh season to season season one episode one willow canyon homeowners annual party henry returns after he's been absent from working at party down for several years season two episode one jackal Onassis backstage party. Casey returns. She has been gone to the cruise, as you'll remember. Uh, both seasons one and two end with a wedding. And actually, we could make an argument all the way down the line that there are similarities. Episode two of both seasons have a an association of sorts having a get-together. 
Episode 3 both have uh, essentially uh, hookup uh, parties uh, or events designed for people to uh, hook up or get together. Season, uh, both the episodes of 4 in both uh, involve events in which there is a fundamental flaw or farce or a deception that is taking place season one episode four investors dinner of course the whole thing is a scam season two episode four there is this deception about uh, additional child a son that james ellison had that his widow is not aware of a second family and the attempts to hide that from the widow Season uh, 1, Episode (laughs) 5, and Season 2, Episode 5, both involve celebrities. Now, in the first season, it's an adult uh, video awards after party. In Season 2, it's the great Steve Gutenberg. So, Episode 5 in both seasons has those similarities. Episode 6 involves producers. Think about that. Season 1, Episode 6, Taylor Stiltskin, Sweet 16. Leonard Stiltskin is a producer, uh, main figure in that character trying to get a job at this Sweet 16 party from a producer. Season 2, Episode 6, the Not On Your Wife opening party, opening night party. There is a producer, a comedy producer for Warner Brothers who Casey flirts with in an attempt to get a role as well, or attempt to get roles, non-specifics. Non-specific roles, there is a specific role in the first season. It's the part of uh, the part of Edgar Allan Poe. Henry's trying to get Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, or something like that. It's sort of non-specific in season two, but same thing, attempting to get a job from a producer at a party in the sixes of both season one and two. Episode seven, Get this, they're both about team building uh, uh, events aimed at team building. In season one, episode seven, of course, it's the Brandix corporate retreat. That is team building, as it turns out, for a telemarketing firm. And in season two, episode seven, that's the party down company picnic. So think about that. Can you imagine? And then in the eights, the eighth episode of both seasons is celebrating an individual. Season 1, Episode 8, it's celebra- it Celebrate Ricky Sargulish or Sargulish, Sargulish, either way. In Season 2, Episode 8, Joel Munt's Big Deal Party. The, both of them are events in honor of one specific person. Now, Joel Munt is doing this because he's landed this contract and he's rubbing it in Roman's face. But still, it's two uh, episodes centered around one person. And then I'll stretch a little bit on this one. The nines on both are uh, related by getting together of classmates. In season one, episode nine, James Rolfe High School 20th Reunion. Obviously, that speaks for itself. It's a reunion of Ron's high school. In season two, episode nine, Cole Landry's draft day party. Well, Cole Landry's college teammates are there. And both episode tens are set at a wedding again patterns there are parallels is it deliberate i don't know seems that way so what can we expect i expect that the first episode 
will involve the return of a character. Who is that character? Who's been gone? Is it Henry returning again? Is it Kyle returning from... Who knows? We'll see. We know it's not Casey because Lizzie Kaplan's not going to be in the show. Or so the article on Vulture says. The last episode is likely a wedding, don't you think? And somewhere in between there would be associations, maybe an event with a, a, a certain celebrity, a producer. Boom, it's all there. Don't you see it now? So there it is. There's my prediction. Having no such information about what the specific events are, I'm just looking at the patterns. All right, there it is. That's our big giant preview special. Who knows when you hear this? It is happening, Party Down Revival. There's my preview. There are my thoughts. Let's move on. Are you ready? Here we go. Let's do a deep dive on Constance Carmel, played by the great Jane Lynch. Let's go. Again, as always, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. We're going to talk about this character in depth. We've already examined the five primary characters that appear in all 20 episodes to date. Now we have two additional characters discussed. Today, let's talk about Constance Carmel. Next time, let's talk about Lydia Dunfrey. Constance Carmel appears in nine total episodes, the first eight episodes of season one, and then additionally, the very last episode of season two, which is, in fact, her wedding. Now, this character, played by the great Jane Lynch, Jane Lynch has been in so very many things. I, I think I go to Best in Show first, A Mighty Wind, Waiting for Guffman, all those Christopher Guest movies, which are just incredible. I think most people would think of Glee, and of course Glee relates to Party Down in that she apparently left Party Down to go be in Glee. So that's why in the ninth episode of season one, she is replaced by Jennifer Coolidge as Bobby Sinclair, who we learn is her roommate. And in fact, they have a past relationship in that Bobby Sinclair's character ran Constance Carmel over. And folks, this is going to be a real challenge. Try saying Constance Carmel 10 times fast and see what happens. And I think because of that, we're going to have some, some blurred names throughout, but I'm going to do the best I can. This character, again, spoilers, this character created by John Embaum, Dan Etheridge, Paul Rudd, and Rob Thomas, featured on Stars. Subscribe to Stars and you'll see it. Uh, this character is far, far more complex than it first seems. We meet Constance in episode one, Seemingly this sort of comic relief in a comedy show, but still sort of a silly, flippant, uh, have fun, airheaded. Maybe that's the first impression one might get. But that is not the character. This is, in fact, a complex character of many contradictions. And that contradiction is established right away in the second episode. We go from this sort of light having fun super soakers in episode one to episode two, giving Henry this very menacing supposed pep talk about if someone she know, knows dying after he stopped uh, trying to be an actor. We see her threaten Ron with a knife. We see 
there's more than meets the eye and it's a great performance of course i say that about all the all the actors because they're all great what jane lynch does in this role is in my view obviously it's my view since i'm the one doing this podcast she's able to present these different shades smiling yet listen to the words and you see the menace you feel the menace at certain points not always but also this disconnect and so let's talk about that what do we know there are moments where it seems that constance carmel is is not there she's not hearing what's being said about her Uh, but this seems to be a self-defense mechanism and we learn even more we learn um that there is quite a backstory so let's get to that backstory well to start off with henry estimates that she is 48 years old that's in season one episode three pepper mcmaster single seminar there's a moment where they're getting high in the bathroom she talks about a, a role she had in a show named hooper and because of that he does the math and we think at the time of episode uh, season one she is 48 years old she has had uh, many ro- small roles it seems like in tv shows and b movies and that was not recently that was not any time immediately prior to the show that we're watching but that seems to have been in the 70s in particular we know that she values being an actor above all else it seems that she views acting as i don't know the highest aspiration because she sort of d- uh, distinguishes people who are actors versus everyone else citizens and there's, there's sort of an in-group there's a there's a group that matters which is actors and then there's sort of these other folks and it's not to say she's automatically disrespectful to the other folks but maybe they, they don't matter quite as much based on her sort of re- reactions and so we know that she also has been in many many relationships uh, with many uh, many gentlemen that comes out throughout and she's had relations uh, it seems that in improbable places so we question is this actually happened do we have a an unreliable narrator or you know is it just that she's burned out or all of the above and that is another aspect of the character that we know and we hear over and over she has done many drugs over the years and talks about that frequently uh, a, a sort of go-to line for her is talking about is, is, is complaining and lamenting the fact that she says cocaine is uh, w- weaker than it used to be that's uh, a, a, a sentiment she goes to often and so we learn through all this kind of complexity underneath that there is some tragedy according to her life tree illustration in the season one episode seven brand x corporate retreat there's a moment where casey kyle and constance try saying that 10 times fast they do participate in the life tree um, team building exercise and there's a line that indicates apparently she was abused uh, sexually by her grandfather so through all these other things that are happening there's there's also this very disturbing and tragic backstory and so we credit her her efforts and and determination to make the most out of life and overcome with that in mind we look at the things that matter to her 
again, it's sort of tenets. I want to say character traits, but really this is more about tenets. One, acting is the highest aspiration. Two, actors are a class above everyone else. Three, popularity matters. That is a, the subject of a whole uh, her, her B story, I guess you would say, or maybe a C story in the Taylor Stiltskin Sweet 16 uh, episode. She is encouraging Taylor to reject her unpopular friends in favor of her popular friends. Obviously very disturbing and superficial uh, mindset, but in her, it, she, she, she gleefully is encouraging Taylor to do these things. And so she's sort of gleeful in all she does, it seems. And I don't mean, maybe I'm saying glee because of the fact that she's such a famous character in that particular show, but, but cheerful. And she seems to be the eternal optimist, except... And here's another tenant. I don't know, what are we up to, four or five? Uh, she has this aversion to aging. And she does all she can to block it out. Or so it seems. Season one, episode three, Peppa McMaster's single seminar. This other huge character shift in that she is aggressively disrespectful to senior citizens. And it's very obvious that it is a self-defense mechanism. She doesn't want to see that in herself. She doesn't want to be equated with that. And so we get all this idea, sort of seemingly whimsical enthusiasm for life. But when we pay closer attention, uh, darkness at the edges, threatening people with knives, spitting in people's foods. Here is a key with all of this. Constance seems like a very interesting person to spend time with or have a conversation with. However, you do not want her to cater your party. In season one, episode two alone, that's the California College Conservative Union Caucus, uh, she drops a ladle and just wipes it on her uh, shirt and puts it back on the, the serving table. She eats food. She talks about spinning in food. Uh, it's clear that hygiene and uh, food safety are, are not necessarily her priorities when it comes to the service industry. Not to say she's dirty in any way, but again, the ladle, the ladle thing, spitting in food, straight up threatening Ron with a knife in hand. So, and that's all. That's episode two. So we see this other aspect to it. Um, through it all, though. I think it's clear she she's a good person. She has just had quite a life. And I'm going to give you a theme. Escalation in desperation. In fact, I guess that is her art, her character arc. As this as it progresses, as the show progresses, we see her getting increasingly desperate. Uh we see the in season 1 episode 4, investors dinner at the drop of a hat, she's making pig noises because someone has told her that they have a connection possibly to uh, a role, even though it's preposterous, uh, in season one, episode nine, when she is gone. We are told by Bobby Sinclair, played by Jennifer Coolidge, that she has left the country and followed Zoltan, who we'll talk about more, uh, a gentleman named Zoltan, who's an admitted former smuggler to Europe in hopes of uh, you know, further our acting career in season two, episode 10 at her wedding. She is marrying a senior citizen. There's nothing wrong with that, obviously, 
but she has gone on and on previously to sort of disavow herself of that uh, in the Pepper McMaster single seminar, season one, episode three. And here we are at the end uh, of the series, or the end as of right now, until we get those new episodes. And here she is, and she is marrying a senior citizen who has pre previously been married about nine times, and she met him on Craigslist. He's a former producer. Uh, all right, let's talk about some ups and downs. What's the high point? Well, I think the high point's very clear. Season one, episode eight, celebrate Ricky Sargulish. And she is recognized, as I just mentioned, there's a smuggler at this party named Zoltan. He recognizes her. When he was a smuggler, he would hide out. He would watch VHS tapes of some of her performances. Uh, she's apparently uh, had, had a nude scene in a movie called Dingleberries. And she was in a movie called Wild Nuts and a movie called Screamweaver. He recognizes her. So this is everything to her, right? She is having her moment of glory. She's being recognized by a legitimate fan. He is a fan of hers. And she kind of gets to hold court. He just listens to her story. She signs headshots. It, she is living, she's living the dream. She is an actor. She is being recognized as such. So that, I think that's a very clear high point, which was her final episode in season one and all the way until we get to the end of season two. That end of season two, season two, episode 10, her wedding, I think is both a high and a low. It's a high because she's getting married. She seems to be having a good time. She's uh, with an affluent man. Man, she's uh, seems to be doing well in terms of uh, material circumstances. Uh, she says she's happy. Uh, on the other hand, she is sort of going against the things she said she was going to do. It's clear that this relationship is influenced by her desire to get another uh, acting job, and she's insulted by the man's daughter deliberately, right, right to her face, and. She doesn't react, so it's a really disrespectful moment, but she takes it in stride, or she seems to just kind of block it out in that way she's able to. So it's both a high and a low. Clear low moments would be, I think, season one, episode three, and it's, it's tough. When we say low moments, I guess I'm defining them as what we are seeing, or maybe I'm imparting my values on what I'm seeing, because she has this ability to sort of block things out very low moment uh, I think as I just said that season 2 episode 10 she's disrespected she's insulted by Howard's daughter and that's publicly there's other people around I mean at her wedding she is totally disrespected and she just she just rolls with it she smiles through it so she it's hard to say low moments that she's subjectively experiencing or that we can see her experiencing. Instead, it's sort of what I'm what seeing and putting myself in that place. And in season one, episode three, I mean, just the way she's so disrespectful to the senior, so dismissive. Uh, and then I'll, and then she ends up saving her former beau's life, Bruce, and spending more time with him. I think from her perspective, that would be a tough moment in that she's confronting her mortality. But again, she has this ability to just sort of block things out. Uh, season one, episode two, again, I think us as an audience watching, she has a very funny but very awkward moment of making these kind of public accusations, making these accusations to this group. 
and season one episode four what we are seeing would be a low moment in that she's being humiliated uh being made to make these barnyard sounds and all these things for a fake potential movie role uh now favorite performance i just can't talk about this particular scene enough at the beginning of season one episode two california college conservative union caucus she goes up to henry this is at the start of the episode and she puts her her arm around uh, henry pollard played by adam scott and he's very uncomfortable he looks very put out and, and disturbed to be touched because of again we've talked in other episodes listen to the deep dive on henry pollard and learn more about this from this moment from henry's perspective she is telling this story about a friend and it seems like yeah, in her mind she's cheering henry up but it is a very disturbing and sad story about a man's failed attempt at becoming a successful actor actor living in poor conditions and ultimately uh, stopping and then dying after falling off a pier and so it is a very bleak and sad story but in her mind it is uh, she's uplifting Henry she's motivating Henry that whole scene the Jane Lynn's performance is unbelievable Adam Scott's reaction Lizzie Kaplan standing there taking it all in it, it's incredible one of my favorite scenes in the whole series definitely my favorite performance so, having said that, let's go through the nine episodes, not beat by beat, but let's just talk about what we see with Constance to go a little bit further and getting an understanding of this very complex character. I can't recommend enough to you. There's typically, as I've said in other episodes, there's typically so many characters on screen at the same time between the speaking characters, the extras in the background, doing these rewatches where I'm focusing specifically on these certain characters, whether or not they're speaking, it really adds to the experience. Go for it. Do it yourself. I think you'll have a good time. So let's do it. Let's go in a deep dive. Let's start with season one. What happens? What does she do? Okay. Season 1, Episode 1, Willow Canyon, Homeowners, Annual Party. We first meet, well, everyone. We first meet Constance helping Kyle practice lines for the Palisades. And she's got her glasses on. She's serious about it. She's helping. And she makes a reference to uh, words of wisdom she was given by Gene Hackman, when she w worked on Lucky Lady. And so I'll just put it right there, out there right now. I wrote down the roles that she talked about in the series. Here's what I came up with. She said she was in Lucky Lady. She said she was in a show called Hooper. She said she played a corpse on Matlock. She said that she played a character named Hooker on Beretta. She was in the movie Dingleberries. She was in the movie Wild Nuts, and she was in Screamweaver. So we at least know of those seven things based on what is said at any point during the show. The more you know, right? So she's big into cheese, a very gross moment where she eats the cheese and Ron makes her spit it out. Uh, and one of the big things that jumps out, I think, in this episode is her uh, uh, gravitating to a camera. 
There's a camera to film the party. She jumps right out in front of it and starts dancing with the host. There, she, she has a super soaker attack on the kids, and that's being filmed. There's um, a, a, the moment when they're giving out the neighborhood awards. She goes to the front, and she puts herself out there and kind of interjects herself. Again, front and center, there's the camera, and she's making jokes. She gets there. So when the camera's on, doesn't matter that it's a party. doesn't matter it's not a movie. She jumps in there. She gets involved, and she puts herself on film. Uh, she supports Kyle, and that's another thing I think that really gets established well in season one, episode one, is that she has this kind of supportive friendship with Kyle. Kyle, for all his um, bro-ness, has a, a real respect for Constance, and that comes out right from the very beginning. We also learn this backstory. She was hit by a car when she was auditioning, auditioning for Cannonball Run 2, that was, uh, in, instead of it being the most devastating thing and being angry with somebody forever, instead of that, she ends up, it becomes a positive. She's given a copy of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. This is a huge breakthrough for her, she says. And so, again, she has this incredible ability to just work through anything, even if it's a, even if it's a setback. And so it turns out, we learn in Season 1, Episode 9, the person who hit her wasn't just anybody. It was, in fact, Bobby St. Brown, who, at the time of season one, is, in fact, her roommate. So see, all these all these pieces fit together. And that's really season one, episode one. There's not a lot in terms of the depth, but we, we sort of establish who she is. She, she hams it up for the camera, and it sets up what happens next. Right away in season one, episode two, California, college, conservative, union, caucus, a shift takes place. And we see that there is far much more to the Constance character. We Again, as I spoke in depth, the pep talk with Henry, which is actually a very sad and disturbing story. But in her mind, it, it, it's, it just reinforces that you have to keep trying. Dreams are a life force, that incredible line. She doesn't read the room. It doesn't occur to her that Henry is... <laughs> thrown back by this particular story. We see the ladle drop. We see her wipe it on her clothes and, and, and still put it on the serving table. Uh, we see the outbursts, the you know well-meaning she's trying to defend. She thinks that there has been uh, some discrimination, homophobia, racism, misogyny. She, she wants to stand up against these things, but in fact that's not what happens. She's misread the situation. She talks about, uh, she's quick to want to spit in some food. She says she likes to do it. So again, now we, we, we question, wait, I thought this was the happy-go-lucky eternal optimist. Well, she is that, but she's also got these other aspects to her. She threatens Ron, just straight up threatens Ron, puts a knife up and, sa and says, you know, if you make me go apologize, uh, I'll cut you, something along those lines. I love spitting. That's what she talks about, spitting in food. So... We see this other side. We see the darkness below. Uh, we see that she is not someone to be messed with. You, and so be careful if you try and push her too far. Uh, we question maybe some of her educational background because she, she thinks that uh, Toronto is in the United States. And she struggles to follow instructions, right? Ron gives her a very specific task. Get the certain type of cigars she comes back 
with the wrong ones. She meant well. She was told that they were better than the ones that were requested. But on the other hand, she just can't follow directions. This all gets back to the point that you would not want this individual catering a party you had and probably pretty difficult to have as an employee to work with. Although, again, the people like her, Casey's relationship with her, Casey sort of sees her uh, for who she is and I think she cares about her. I think that she thinks she's a good person, but she also knows there are the other, these other aspects to her. Um, but again, Kyle, a good supportive relationship right from the word go. Season 1, Episode 3, Peppa McMaster's Single Seminar. This, again, is where it comes out, this really aggressive aversion, a revulsion to, to talking about aging. And it's manifested in her disgust of senior citizens, or so she says. And again, this really seems like it's out of self-defense. Uh, but she's straight up disrespectful to one gentleman who's trying to get a drink. She uh, runs into Bruce Nesbitt. She can't think of his name, and this kind of establishes that she has been in many relationships or had many relations uh, with different individuals. She, can't, she runs through a list of names. It is uh, Bruce Nesbitt, as it turns out. In fact, he has a bite mark to show their history together. They met on the set of Hooper. They have, or so they say, had some improbable relations in, in places that make no sense. Um, you see that darkness in that there's a great scene where she goes to the bathroom. She invites herself to go with Henry to get high with uh, this other person. It turns out it's Bruce. So there we have this awkward, and then they're reminiscing, and they just laugh, reminiscing about someone getting seriously injured. Granted, they're high at the time, but Henry plays the, the, the voice of reason who says, boy, it's not really very funny, and that's true. A great scene, and it goes on for a while in the bathroom of them. She initially rejects Bruce because of what he represents. She is devastated that Henry calls her out for being approximately 48 years old. You're only as old as you feel is the, is the line that she gives. And so in the end, Bruce is choking. He's dying. or He's had a heart attack. He's not choking. He's had a heart attack. She swoops in. She kisses him on the floor. She basically revives him. So she has some sort of magical power. But no, she, 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 she brings him back. And then we don't see her at the end because she has, uh, she's gone off with him, presumably to resume uh, relations with him and she saves him more out of self-defense he can't die because that would be an indication of her aging so whatever the intent is she does save his life or so it seems season one episode four the investors dinner we get more uh, again backstory she was on the show beretta uh, she had a character named hooker and she she won't concede that uh, this character was a prostitute and said she, she talks about sort of her acting process. She gives an elaborate backstory, uh, even though this is a very small part. And I think it's great. We, we see she takes every opportunity and everything very seriously. Unfortunately, that gets twisted later on because we, we see that she has she's been manipulated by Kellen, sort of a rich kid 
who had been talking with Kyle. He's there, you know, Kellen is there investing and going on about really his, his, the things he's inherited or been given by his wealthy father. And she gets tricked into uh, performing various barnyard animals under the guise that there's going to be a production of Old MacDonald. And it's a great Kyle moment. If you listen to the Kyle discussion, one of the best, it's a, a very touching moment. He steps in, Kyle shuts it down, and then Kyle supports her so that she doesn't even know uh, what actually happened to her. We do. We know from our perspective she's being humiliated. She doesn't, and credit Kyle for that. So we see desperation firsthand, acting, 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 just the opportunity to do it. She'll, she'll do whatever it takes. She'll put herself out there. And unfortunately, that gets twisted and taken advantage of. Season 1, Episode 5, the Sensation Awards After Party, there is really not a lot to say. She's barely in it. Her first appearance is around 11.05. Um, she walks around with the owner, Alan Duck. They kind of hang out. I guess the only thing we really learn is that she gets along with the owner and that she apparently doesn't know what ecstasy is, even though she goes on and on about um, the good old days in her mind of when she used strong cocaine and other drugs. And she really only has three short appearances of that, so there's not a ton to say about that particular performance. There's not a ton of character development or any at all. So let's move on to the next episode, which does have more to say, and that is Season 1, Episode 6, Taylor Stiltskin, Sweet 16. In this episode, we sort of see that, that whimsy... Uh, she seems to be the only Party Down crew member who is uh, truly excited by this idea of the, the club boat and they're wearing this, the different uniforms and the jackets and the sunglasses and she likes it, she gets into it. Uh, we see that she has some twisted values and one being popularity above all, right? So she she's, she's trying to push this particular dish, a sirloin slider, onto Leonard Stiltskin, who is the very vulgar uh, movie producer uh, played by J.K. Simmons and this she gets put into a situation where she's supposed to get the birthday girl the sweet 16 young woman out of her her room to come to the main party the party's only been attended by the, her less popular uh, former friends or friends from years gone by the popular kids have not shown up she quote-unquote comforts Taylor by encouraging Taylor to hold out for the so-called cool or popular kids and to reject the people who actually showed up. So it's a very shallow view, popularity above all. Um, she claims that but she was m middle popular in uh, middle school, but she was fully popular by junior high, whatever that means, right? Or, uh, so anyway, she is... Uh, Taken out of the picture by Casey, Casey intervenes and brings some reason. She gets Taylor to come out and really touching, uh, you know, joyful dancing. I mean, she really just has a good time. Constance Carmel does on the dance floor with everyone. Uh, she comes across as a very warm person, even in spite of all the things we just heard about valuing popularity. Here she is with all the kids having a good time, just dancing on the, on the dance floor. And then... In come the popular kids, and she cheers when Taylor rejects the people who are in that in that room that she's dancing with, 
and instead walks away to go with the popular kids. The line, it's like a fairy tale. Now, this is a line that will be repeated by Lydia, who is her de facto replacement uh, in season two. Season two, episode 10, Lydia says that line. And so, of course, it's not like a fairy tale at either situation, either here or at her wedding, when ultimately her husband dies. We'll talk more about that. Great line. You know, great juxtaposition in the moment. Season 1, Episode 7, The Brain Dex Corporate Retreat. One of my very favorite episodes, uh, as we've talked about in other episodes. Listen to those, and you will understand why it is. The show starts off with the two headshots. She's one headshot. She has classes, and that is for uh, her to seem, uh, I guess, more serious or more refined. And so... She asks Henry to choose. Ron makes a comment about it looking like Joan Rivers. But you see that va- her value system come out in that acting matters more than anything else. Rick Fox, who, of course, multiple-time NBA champion with the Los Angeles Lakers, she recognizes him as an actor. Uh, and I had to think about that. Remember, he was in Oz, the HBO show. But I know he's been in a number of things. So she recognizes him as an actor, which of course would not be what most people I would think would, would, would know him from. And that's the whole idea, acting above all. And so she sees that, she's excited. And in this episode, you know, Ron puts on these covert team building exercises using the retreat materials without permission. And she goes along with it. We see that Kyle and Constance are the two people who go along with all the activities, and try, it appears, sincerely. So she's got that enthusiasm. She goes for it. She tries. And this is where we get that backstory, the life tree. Under the belief section, here are some of the things that she wrote. She wrote, Jesus loves me. I'm a giver. I'm a better person for having been molested by grandpa. That's what it says on the card. Although there's no other reference to it, she doesn't talk about it with anyone. Uh, she also put, oh, always give director two options. I'll always be beautiful is another thing she put. Teamwork is my middle name is something else she put. Living in a single does not take away my worth as a human being. God is in the smallest of things. That's another thing that she wrote. And I am listed on IMDb, so again, that value system. This is part of what makes her a person. She's affirmed as being a real person because she is listed on IMDb. Under her under the roots section, your beliefs and the roots, where those come from, she put sat next to Mel Gibson. And then there's something else about someone that she had relations with. But we get that enthusiasm. We get that willingness to participate and that's sort of what's endearing and charming about the character and then we see there's all these other aspects to her which leads us to her moment of triumph in season one episode eight in all her glory the episode titled celebrate ricky sargulish aka sargulish so this episode as i've already talked about she is recognized by a character named Zoltan. Zoltan, who is an admitted smuggler. And in his process of smuggling, he would have to hide in a shed. 
live on on something that was preposterous or poison essentially and watch videotapes and these tapes were apparently 70s b-movies dingleberries wild nuts screenweaver she gets to hold court she gets to tell stories she's signing headshots she name drops jan michael vincent and dom de louise and yes for all you rick and morty fans jan michael vincent the same one in that uh, it's a tv episode maybe the first one uh, so it's a great moment and really if this was her last appearance which it seemed like if you just saw the first season it all made sense and she was going out on top she's got fans people are paying only attention to her hanging on her every word it's 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 a nice moment she gets to dance with her fans um we also see that sort of weird her her unusual attempts at comfort Casey's upset it's a fallout from the previous episode when when she and and Henry got into it and Henry was jealous and she tries comforting uh Casey in the beginning of this episode by talking about her experience with workplace romance and and sort of inappropriately giving these descriptions of improbable places that she uh had relations with people and again it's that sort of weird disconnect or that inability to read the room she means well it seems but it just comes across very awkwardly and her interactions when she's doing those things with with Casey played by Lizzie Kaplan are are great and this is another one just like in season one episode two when she's talking about her friend who died watch Lizzie Kaplan's reaction as Casey same thing here at the beginning of season one episode eight watch Lizzie Kaplan's reaction it just makes the moment the Jane Lynch performance coupled with the Lizzie Kaplan performance it's gold gold so there it was we think we watched the next episode season one episode nine James Rolfe high school 23 union and there's no Constance and Henry gets to be our sort of mouthpiece where's Constance and that's when it's revealed that she has gone with Zoltan she's followed him to Europe presumably to she's followed him abroad to try and uh, have a career a revival have work be a movie star I think she says in Blurvistan or something like that so we learn that Constance roommate was essentially the same as Constance because Bobby St. Brown the character is very similar kind of burned out wants to be an actor bizarro bizarro techniques to improve as a person smiling so many times every day uh, a lot of drug consumption and Bobby and Constance have made a bet that they can get Henry back into acting it was only for ten dollars and Henry ends up staying but for different reason but anyway he, he, he just pays Bobby the the Bobby stuff is hilarious the dolphin noises all those things great job uh, by Jennifer Coolidge as always and if you saw White Lotus which I recommend seeing it's another recent incredible Jennifer Coolidge performance so more backstory is given through Bobby in terms of she is the one who struck Constance hit her with a car to get a job and Constance is okay with it because she got Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance etc they're friends because they're basically they're basically the same people this sort of burned out uh, disconnected folks who seem like good folks but they have they have some issues that they're 
working through or not. And they're still chasing the dream. They're still chasing the dream. Which leads us to the very end, or so we thought, until the revival. Season 2, Episode 10. What is the title? Constance Carmel Wedding. Constance gets married. But not only does she get married, she gets widowed. So we'll start at the end. Howard Greengold is the man she marries, and then he dies at the end. She, he dies... And, presumably, she has been left a large sum of money. We'll see. Back to what we do know. Season 2, Episode 10. She's very excited. In a very sad thing, instead of just straight up inviting the party down crew to attend her wedding, she hires them as caterers. That way she knows they will be there. And what is touching, though, is this is her family. And as I've talked many times, one of the endearing things about the show is the family atmosphere, is the fact that these this is a community, and they might bicker, they might fight, but they do stick up for each other, and they take comfort in each other. And they persevere because they have these connections and these relationships to help through the many, many lows. And so, she's hired him. That way, that way she knows they'll show up. Howard Greengold is her soon-to-be husband. He is an older gentleman. He's been married nine times. He's been divorced nine times. And he has an oxygen tank and he has heart issues right from the beginning. He fakes dying, or fakes having a heart attack in the beginning, so we know he's off. And that fits right along with Constance. This wedding is a fusion. It is um, Mr. Uh, Greengold, the sort of traditional... Uh, Jewish wedding mixed with constant sort of unspecified Eastern quote-unquote beliefs or motifs. They talk about that. The, the Eastern comes from the episode itself. And it's kind of hippie-ish stuff. And there is uh, pot brownies and there are people with incense and things of that nature. 60s hangover, you might, however you want to describe it. What we do see is more of threats of violence and this comes out in Constance's uh, interactions with Lydia. Lydia Dunfrey who for all uh, intents and purposes replaces Constance. She becomes the sixth main character in season two which Constance was for you know eight out of ten episodes in season one and the character of Constance is threatened or insecure about the presence of the Lydia character. There is a comment made by Casey to Constance reporting that her soon-to-be husband has flirted with Lydia. In response to that, Constance threatens to quote-unquote cut Lydia. So once again, straight to the threats of violence, in particular cutting like she did to Ron, same threat uh, essentially that in season one, episode two. And we see with Lydia uh, an insecurity, an overt and really stated insecurity that we don't see uh, elsewhere in the Constance Carmel character arc or uh, in, in, in the adventures that we see on screen. She is clearly threatened. Her place in Party Down has been, she's been replaced. She can see that. And she makes a point of saying, I can't be replaced. 
And the, the contradiction between the two characters is overtly stated. We have Constance who says, follow your heart. She's more freewheeling. And we have Lydia who is more practical, right? Lydia herself is not trying to be famous. She wants her daughter to be famous and she wants to be wealthy as the manager of her daughter. She does want to be wealthy. She wants to be comfortable. And there's this great conversation. Ron is in the middle of it. Lydia advocating to be practical and Constance advocating to follow your heart. So the two character dynamics are just straight up said and Ron is caught in between. Ultimately, Ron does follow his heart. You have more backstory. The rabbi comes into this conversation about practicality versus follow your heart. And we find out that Constance had been in a relationship with the rabbi and left the rabbi for someone named Aku, who she said that she was in love with. We also uh, have Patrick Duffy, the actor Patrick Duffy playing character Patrick Duffy objects, comes into the wedding, stops everything, gives this improbable history of their relationship, uh, a la the Bruce Nesbitt backstory, things that don't seem physically possible, but alas, Constance says that she was just drunk dialing. It was a drunken call to Patrick Duffy, who she refers to as Duffles. He is shot down and sent away. We have a really excellent conversation between Casey and Constance, I should say. And it's really one of the highlights of the episode. Constance is talking about how she is in love with this man in spite of his history. And Casey is questioning it. And Ultimately, Constance doesn't deny that this relationship is based on the potential or promise of a new role, the perfect role, a great role. But she goes on to say that they are the same type of crazy, and that's how we know it's true love. And Casey, despite her skepticism, seems to take something from this idea because she later repeats it to Henry, saying that, they must not be in love or essentially that they're not the same type of crazy. Casey wants to follow her career and, and keep trying. Henry has given up. Of course, we know that comment then motivates Henry to try again. And he tries out for Velour as the season, or so we thought the series ended back in 2010. But it didn't. We have the really heinous things that Howard's daughter says to Constance accusing her of just you know, attempting to take part of Howard's wealth and her presumably her inheritance. We have just this rein reinforcement of the fact that this is a family and Constance really views Party Down as her family. She calls Henry to look at the prenuptial. Not a lawyer, not anything. It's Henry. Henry goes over it. Henry, who had had this conversation in the bathroom with Howard believes that Howard does in fact love Constance and you know gives the go-ahead gives his approval for signing the prenup saying it's true love and of course uh, that trust is rewarded because Howard gives a fake signature he doesn't actually sign the prenup this comes into play this is relevant because he ultimately dies as they're driving away and Constance sure takes it in stride her newly wedded husband has died. She smiles, she thanks him, and that's how it ends. That's the last we see of her. But we find out, of course, that 
she must be quite wealthy because we find out the prenup was not formally signed by Howard. He wrote a fake name uh, instead of signing his own name to make it binding. Or so the show tells us. Great moment, of course. Kyle dedicating the song My Struggle. But this is a moment where Constance, who at many times doesn't seem to be fully in tune with what's happening, she does pick up on the uh, World War II, the Holocaust themes, or the parallels. She interjects. She says something and stops Kyle from doing any further damage. And so we see this this growth in Constance. She is a more mature for Constance, that is, compared to what we saw in season one. And at times she seems to be much more aware of what's happening and what the implication of things that are being said and done by other people. You know, something to think about, a takeaway she invites Party down because she wants these people to be at her wedding. This is her family. These are the people she cares about. She talks about them a lot. To Howard, he goes on to say that. He goes on to guess who the different people are based on what he has been told by Constance. So the question is, would they have gone to her wedding if she had just invited them? I assume Ron would have. I assume Kyle would have maybe Casey, I don't know if Henry would have. Maybe he would have went with Casey to people watch. Roman, I don't think so. I don't think he would have gone. And we know that Constance, for whatever reason, she likes Roman. Season 1, Episode 8, in spite of the fact that this is the surly, angry, not really any redeeming qualities in the Season 1 version of Roman, she makes the comment, I like you, Roman, season one, episode eight, and celebrate Ricky Sargulish or Sargulish. I think Roman calls him Sargulish. I like Sargulish better. Doesn't matter. Either way, ultimately, that's up to John Enbaum to decide, I suppose. So there we have it. Constance Carmel, a very complex character. More going on than, than it seems when we first meet her. Compare that first introduction in season one. She's dancing. She's, you know, finding the camera. She's playing things up. She's playful to season two, episode 10. She's marrying this uh, elderly man with all these uh, real significant health conditions. She's doing it uh, because she says she loves him, but also because, as she admits, he is a producer with an opportunity for the perfect part or part she loves so we see this, we see her arc, as it were, really an escalation in desperation. And that gets to the conclusions. What, what do we take away from this character? What do I take away from this character? Well, uh, optimism is fun. And there is something about her positivity, her optimism that is fun. It's... Uh, it seems to be a, a great mindset to have, helpful to overcome life's many challenges and obstacles. But, on the other hand, uh, beware of becoming one-dimensional or singularly focused. Because if it goes wrong, you may find yourself in increasingly embarrassing and desperate situations, as we see with Constance. Well done, Party down. Thank you to the creators, John Embaum, Dan 
Etheridge, Paul Rudd, and Rob Thomas. Thank you for this incredible character. And Jane Lynch, thank you for your great work. As far as I know, she will be returning in the revival. So how will this affect the analysis going forward? Only time will tell. Looking forward to the revival. So that's it for the Constance Carmel discussion. That leaves just one main character left to discuss. Lydia Dunphy, played by Megan Mullally. That's going to be the next episode. i got to get that out before the revival starts. And then we'll have to reassess. We'll have to reevaluate. What does this do to our, our thoughts, our analysis on what has happened already in these two perfect seasons of television, Party Down, Stars Network, Give it a watch. And if you want to get in touch with me, do not crack up podcast at gmail.com or don't crack up podcast at gmail.com. No apostrophe. Subscribe if you're on Podbean or Apple Podcast, all those things, like on Twitter, whatever. Don't crack up. Thank you so much for your time. See you next time. Hang in there. Be well. Thank you.